Hello and welcome to Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen, here with another story about historically significant people, places, and events from Connecticut's long and fabled past. Today on Amazing Tales, while you're walking or driving on the ground throughout Connecticut, you're most likely pretty oblivious to the whole other world of activity underway overhead in the skies. Well, it's a magical world with its own set of rules, its own unique dangers, and its own rewards that we mere earthbound mortals can only dream about. Well, here to help me tell the fascinating story of the history of flying in small planes in Connecticut are representatives from two flying clubs. Gary Balua, president of the Flying 20 Club at Danbury Airport, the oldest in the state and maybe in the country. Paul Marola, longtime member and officer of the Silver City Flying Club at Meriden Airport, which is just six years younger. And with them will be Dan May. He manages the FAA Air Traffic Controller Tower at Danbury Airport. And now, the magical life of flying in Connecticut. Airplane pilots speak a completely different language when they're up in the air than we do down here on Earth. It's just part of the mystique that surrounds flying a two-seat or four-seat airplane in the skies over Connecticut. They speak about things like vectors on maps, and they say things like Charlie Alpha Bravo into their headset radios as they communicate with other pilots and air traffic controllers. They take notice of such things as downwinds and crosswinds. Yes, they're a unique bunch, these small plane pilots, a combination of ultra-focused, serious folks who put safety above all else, and thrill-seeking, adventurous souls who find nothing more exciting than the perspective of seeing life from 5,000 feet in the air in a metal contraption not too much bigger than an SUV. You've undoubtedly seen these small aircraft. They usually have one propeller, maybe two. And they can make a very loud noise on takeoff if you happen to be near the airport while they're leaving. That's why the pilots wear these special headsets to minimize the noise of the engine so it doesn't drown out the conversations they're having with air traffic controllers and other pilots. When you talk about the history of flying in Connecticut, well, it's not really a very long history. That's because humankind has not been flying all that long. It's been about 120 years since Orville and Wilbur Wright flew at Kitty Hawk. And for those of you who support the theory that Connecticut's Gustav Whitehead beat them to it, well, add two more years to that history. That's a dispute too detailed to go into in this episode. For those who love to fly, it's a hobby like few others. There are airplanes, helicopters, gliders, hot air balloons, ultralights, and even skydiving if you want to get out of the cockpit every so often and fly like a bird in the Connecticut skies. Well, you can do all these things in the state, and there are plenty of places to choose from. Paved and grass strip airports all over the place. The granddaddy of them all, of course, is Bradley International Airport in Windsor Locks, north of Hartford. But there's, in the city of Hartford, Brainerd Airport. It's in the downtown area right along the Connecticut River and it has both a paved and a grass airstrip. New Haven has Tweed Airport, Sikorsky's in Bridgeport, Groton, New London has a good-sized airport, Oxford Waterbury as well, and then there's airports like Danbury and Meriden and a host of others who have somewhat smaller fields where no commercial traffic takes place. 
And there are the farmer's fields all over the state with grass strips, three of them in the town of Bethlehem, Connecticut alone. Well, today we're going to focus on what we call fixed-wing aircrafts, which is, for you and me, airplanes. And it turns out that the oldest airplane flying club in Connecticut is most likely the oldest flying club in the entire country. The Flying 20 Club in Danbury was formed in 1940, just 10 years after Danbury Airport itself opened. Gary Balua is president of the club. The story goes that it was 20 guys who each put $20 towards a Piper Cub. That's how they came up with the, the Flying 20 Club. In Meriden, the longtime member and officer of the Silver City Flying Club is Paul Marola. He says that six years later, after World War II had ended in 1946, his club got its start. It's the returning of the World War II military pilots that wanted to continue flying. And then there's some civilian pilots that wanted to fly. So they uh, bought shares. They all contributed $100 or whatever it was, and they bought an airplane. Well, I suppose you could say that the club took off from there. Well, for aviation enthusiasts, these clubs offer a relatively economical way to enjoy an expensive hobby. Getting a pilot's license in the first place is not cheap. It costs several thousand dollars. You need to log a lot of time in the air with the plane, and that means you got to rent the plane from one of the flight training schools. It takes several months to get your license after you consider such things as your day job schedule, the instructor's schedule, good weather days for flying, the availability of the plane for renting, and other factors. And then after you get your license, of course, you're going to want to continue flying. So should you buy your own airplane, $30,000, $50,000 or more, or rent one when you want to go up? Well, that's when these clubs make a big difference. As Gary says, with the Flying 20 Club, you only pay for the time you're actually in the air, unlike flight schools that charge you for the time the plane is in your possession. So if I'm going from here to Block Island and I stay there for a few hours then come back, that's about three-hour, four-hour flight time. With the school, it would be from when you take it to when you bring it back. Uh, let's say that's eight hours. So obviously you can see the big difference there. Although every club has different fees, Paul Marola says the Silver City Flying Club is a good deal as well. You're spreading the costs out over, with us, 40 members, over two airplanes. So there's a lot of availability, and, and it's a very economical way to continue flying. And if you've ever been up in one of those tiny planes, I've been up numerous times as a passenger, it's an unbelievably thrilling experience. The view from above just can't be beat. For example, Gary says, take autumn, you know, when the leaves change colors. Well, you can clearly see that line where the leaves are still green versus where they're at peak fall foliage colors. You can fly, let's say, from the south to the north and see the leaves change on your flight in that short period of time. And we can cover, I don't know, 50 miles in, in half an hour or so. Also, once you're airborne, Paul says you experience a realization that you can't get from the many congested traffic jams on Connecticut's roads. We feel it's densely populated no matter where you go. But once you get up in the air, you see how green it is down here, how there's a lot of open wooded space, and it's not really as populated as you would think it is. Gary says, however, there's one big misconception that a lot of people have, namely that an airplane is the place to be on the 4th of July. Fireworks are only going up a couple hundred feet. 
we're typically flying a couple thousand feet. So it really looks unimpressive from the sky. <laughs> Paul says one very memorable flying experience he had was coming in for final descent while landing on his friend's grass strip right past the wide Connecticut River. You come in over the river perpendicular and the trees are, are cut at the end of the runway. It goes up, the, the ground goes up to a street. You had to land and slow down before that. While these views are breathtaking, the safety factor of flying in midair is not lost on pilots. There are two basic ways the pilots fly. One is called VFR, visual flight rules, and the other is IFR, or instrument flight rules. Now, if you're flying visually, it's also known as see and avoid. You have to keep your eyes wide open for other aircraft in the area and make sure you avoid them. More on that later. What if you just wanted to go out for the equivalent of a Sunday drive with no particular destination in mind? Well, Danbury Airport Tower Chief Dan May says that's your prerogative, and you can take off for a spin without filing a flight plan, which would tell people on the ground where you're heading. The pilot wants to, for instance, say, take off out of here, and he just decides on a whim he wants to go to Block Island, VFR, that's up to him. And if he gets halfway there, changes his mind, and just wants to go up to Boston or something, that's him. He can change direction, go wherever he wants. Dan says there are some people who purposely don't file flight plans because they don't want their whereabouts widely known. Of course, should you have an accident and your plane were to crash, nobody would know where to even start looking for you. Incidentally, that was the second time you heard Block Island, if you're listening carefully. A beautiful piece of land in the middle of Long Island Sound off the coastline near the Connecticut-Rhode Island border. It's a favorite destination for many pilots. You can get there in about 90 minutes, eat lunch, and then fly back, taking in the gorgeous Long Island Sound waters and the Connecticut coastline. Of course, Connecticut's location also makes it possible to fly relatively quickly to Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard, Cape Cod, and Montauk at the tip of Long Island. Well, as a passenger, I've been treated to the pure joy of being able to just look out the window and take it all in. And that's the case when I'm in a two-seater plane or a 747 heading over the Atlantic Ocean to Europe. In the pilot's seat, however, is a person who Gary Belua says is thinking about the upcoming flight in a totally different way than you and I are. I am responsible for someone else who knows nothing about what I'm doing, um, so I should think through what I'm going to do. Gary says pilots are trained to play a what-if game while they're still on the ground and there's time to think about consequences. For example, when you drive to the store, you might take a peek at your tires to make sure none of them are flat before you drive away. Think about it as you're going on a long distance cross-country drive. You're probably going to do a little bit more than just, yeah, the four tires are there. You might check the tire pressure, make sure you have oil, um, things like that. For pilots, there are entire checklists of items to look at, not just the oil and tires, but actually the condition of the craft and for example, are there any dents? Did a fuel truck back up into the wing and crease it? Are the steering mechanisms functioning properly? These are not only looked at from the exterior, but a pilot gets into the cockpit and checks them from that vantage point. There are also the in-flight mishaps that can occur, and Gary says it's the responsibility of all pilots to think through these matters before they ever become airborne and have a plan B in mind. 
Dan May says that air traffic controllers are certified weather observers, but they are not weather forecasters. They look at current weather conditions. They're not in the business of predicting future conditions. All of the National Weather Service data that is broadcast, say on the Weather Channel, comes from the equipment at Danbury Airport. Yet Dan says looks can be deceiving in the skies. What might look like a nice sunny summer day on the ground, you get airborne and that layer of haze will just cover everything and you'll get up there. And I mean, I've been up there before on a day like that where you just get up there and then you look down and the haze is just blanketing the terrain and you can't see anything. And Paul says that all pilots have to be skilled in reading weather forecasts. You need to be somewhat of a little weatherman because you've got to look at the weather ahead. That's one thing getting there. You got to come back. So you make sure you have a slot of weather that you can come back on. And he says that sometimes, even when it's a clear, calm day, beautiful for flying, problems can occur after takeoff. I've also had somebody uh, get sick on me twice. We were going to go to Martha's Vineyard, took off out of Meriden. I never saw anybody turn green before, but I saw this the first time. I looked over, I said, how are you feeling? She was in the back seat. I don't think I'm feeling good. Paul says air sickness is not unusual. It's just how some people's inner ears function. Even just banking the plane for a turn can cause issues for some passengers. Now, after that woman got sick, they landed, but she insisted after resting for an hour that she was fine and wanted to try again. Well, after a repeat performance, Paul landed again and told her they weren't flying to Martha's Vineyard that day. Another time, he had some passengers who brought along cheese and crackers on a platter for a flight to see the tall ships in New Haven Harbor. That's despite the extremely cramped conditions inside the tiny plane. While the snack was fine, Paul said he did have to put a stop to the guy lighting up a cigarette, which he thought he could do because the plane still had an ashtray installed. Well, while drivers have the rules of the road, there are a number of vitally important rules in the air for pilots to follow. And who manages all of this airplane traffic? Well, that's the function of the air traffic controllers, such as the ones in Dan May's Tower in Danbury. We got a book this thick on, on rules that we have to follow. Uh, there's a lot of things to comply with. Gary says he can fly in a small aircraft in the same airspace as large commercial aircraft, thanks to air traffic controllers, as well as being courteous to the larger craft. There's no reason why we can't do some of the, go some of the same places the airlines do, um, but typically we try to stay enough out of their hair so they don't get mad at us slowing them all down. He says small airplanes can share the same airspace as their larger cousins around major centers like New York, Chicago, and Atlanta. It's not that big a deal. You just work with the air traffic controllers and say, hey, I'm here and I'm going there. Can you let me through this area? Uh, and they'll say yes or no or give us directions around it. Paul says that when you're dealing with an airport that has a tower and you're looking to land, you first make contact about 10 miles out. He says then you have to keep alert for the magic words. They would direct you into their pattern if there's other aircraft coming in. But you need to hear clear to land. That's your authorization to land. But what if there is no tower with air traffic controllers? Who controls where the airplanes are located to make sure they don't run into each other? Dan May says there are also rules for uncontrolled airspace, but it's also a lot different when there are air traffic controllers involved. There's no one central point on how things are going to go. Every pilot is 
acting in their own self-interest. They are self-announcing, but the advantage of having a tower is you have one person that decides what the plan is going to be for everybody. Which has its obvious advantages. Still, Gary says that the rules for flying in uncontrolled airspace are not just the wild, wild west, and that pilots stay in touch with one another on a dedicated radio frequency. The way I tell people is, is think of coming to a four-way stop sign. That's how we're flying. There are certain rules that we have to follow, um, and if everyone follows the rules, it works just fine. With air traffic controllers, he says it's more like coming to an intersection with a traffic lights. Dan May says there's one time, though, when you have to push aside the rule book. When somebody has an emergency and it becomes a potential life and death situation, preserving that life and minimizing damage is of paramount importance. Everything else falls by the wayside until that issue is resolved. Dan says there's another whole set of procedures during those situations aimed primarily at getting the pilot whatever he or she needs to bring the craft in safely. Obviously, if it's an emergency situation as well, we notify ground support equipment, fire department, whatnot, to be here to assist them if things don't go well when they land. We'll have them here standing by. And Dan says that while pilots are constantly checking their equipment during a flight, air traffic controllers are looking for potential issues all the time. It could be as simple as the way that the traffic looks out there, the way that somebody's flying into the pattern, you know, something just doesn't look right. That's what you're always looking for. And he says that not all problems occur on the plane. He says he even looks for signs of fatigue or lack of concentration among his own staff. And not all the pilots have exactly the same interests in flying. For example, take helicopters. Paul Marola doesn't fly one, although his son does, and he doesn't like hot air balloons either. No, I've never been in a balloon. I, I like a seatbelt. I like an engine. Same goes for gliders that get pulled into the sky by a plane and then let loose to glide down to Earth without an engine. There are a couple of soaring clubs for glider enthusiasts within a couple of hours of car travel. Hot air balloons are flown in several locations in Connecticut, including out of the private Wayland Farms grass airstrip in Bethlehem, Connecticut. Back to helicopters, it turns out that Gary Balua loves them, despite the nerve-wracking, non-stop coordination that it takes to fly one. Think of yourself balancing on a beach ball, rubbing your stomach and patting your head. He says that flying a helicopter can be downright confounding. It has no natural tendency to do anything other than what you don't want it to do. <laughs> but what if you love to fly like I do, but have a fear of heights also like I do? Turns out, Paul and I are a lot alike in that area. I know I'm up three, four, five thousand feet, uh, but it's different than being on a ladder 15 feet up. Uh, yeah. And I do know a lot of pilots that, that have the same feeling. It's, you know, either you have fear of heights, high places, or you have fear of falling. And I think we all have an inherent fear of falling. And that's why the aviation industry, pilots, air traffic controllers, and others focus so much on safety. Flying is still the safest way to travel. That's it for this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On, Connecticut's Beaten Path. 
I want to thank my guests for this episode. Gary Ballou, a president of the Flying 20 Club at Danbury Airport. Paul Marola, longtime member and officer of the Silver City Flying Club out of Meriden Airport. And Dan May, who manages the FAA Air Traffic Control Tower at Danbury Airport. Please follow me at my main podcast website, amazingtalect.podbean.com. Also, in between episodes, you can check out my pages on Facebook at Amazing Tales CT. I'd love to hear from you, and don't be shy. Send me an idea of a story you'd like me to look into. If you liked what you heard, spread the word with your family and friends. I'll see you next time here on Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. I'm Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC.